Our Father, we thank you for this morning, and we do ask that you would speak to us from your word, that you would cause us to hear your voice through these ancient words. Father, may your spirit speak it to us. May it be alive and living and active in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would make us attentive, that we might have lives that are changed according to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's fascinating to me how it is that people can so easily miss obvious signs and believe that uh, there's something to the contrary. Uh, They can overlook warning signs so easily. One example of this that fascinated me, even when I was a, uh, a child growing up in Washington State, was surrounded the eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980. That uh, mountain blew its top and spread ash all around the world. It was a monumental blast, but it didn't take people by surprise. There were warning signs that this mountain was going to blow. There were strong earthquakes that shook the area. There was steam venting that was coming from the mountain. And it was clear that there was magma close to the the surface about to cause this mountain to blow its top. And so scientists flooded the area to monitor the situation. And public safety uh, officials warned everybody within a certain mile radius to evacuate and to get out of the way. Because there was going to be devastation from this eruption. But there was one man who refused to heed the warning signs. Harry R. Truman. He was an innkeeper on Spirit Lake there in the shadow of Mount St. Helens. And he was this old mountain curmudgeon who refused to leave. In fact, the officials were getting angry with him because he would not listen to their warnings. And he said things like this. He said, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. Or another time he said, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it. This area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is in between me and the mountain, and the mountain is a mile away. The the mountain ain't going to hurt me. He ignored the obvious signs. In fact, he said that when these earthquakes were happening, they were so strong that they would knock him from his bed. But he simply moved his mattress to the basement uh, and to the floor so he wouldn't be knocked out of bed. He's a classic example of someone who ignored the warning signs. And they did, he did this to his own peril when he lost his life on that morning of May 18, 1980. People can easily ignore obvious warning signs. And the same thing can happen spiritually. There are ways for us to realize what's going on inside of us, what's going on in our hearts, to know where our heart truly stands before the Lord. And yet, most people ignore those signs. Most people don't want to deal with what is showing up on the dashboard. 
We ignore the indicators that reveal to us what's going on beneath the surface. And yet we need to know why we do what we do, and we need to know the true condition of our hearts. The current, currently accepted explanation for why we do the things we do is a purely biological one. They look to evolutionary biology to explain why humans act the way that they do. In fact, I read one book that tried to say that we sacrifice for others on one hand and then selfishly only protect our own interests on the other only because of chemicals in our brains. In other words, they would say we're evolutionary machines that run off certain doses of chemicals. That is why we do what we do. But this anthropological theory runs counter to the Bible's explanation of human behavior. While we can recognize and appreciate the discoveries of brain science and the chemicals going on inside of us, we cannot abandon the Bible's teaching on why humans operate the way that they do. God clearly says that we do what we do because of our hearts. You see, when the Bible talks about the human heart, it's not just talking about this place of emotion where we simply feel good and have gushy feelings for people that we like. The heart, biblically speaking, is the center point of our being. It's the control center of all that we do, all that we think, all that we feel, and every decision that we make, every desire that we have. It all stems from our hearts. And so the heart is vitally important, which is why the Bible says to guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so it's important for us to discern our hearts to know what's going on in each one of our hearts and to know our heart's true condition before the Lord. If we do not assess our own hearts, if we do not look and see and diagnose where we are at, it could be to our own peril. Our passage today is going to help us to peel back the layers, to expose the true condition of our hearts. And so I invite you to please turn in your personal copy of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word to Luke chapter 6. If you're not there already, to Luke chapter 6. We've been going through Luke's gospel, looking at who Jesus is, looking at what he teaches and what that means for us today. And he came with a revolutionary message, a message of good news, but a message that cut to the heart of humanity, a message that is meant to humble us as well. This morning we will be reading from Luke 6, verses 43 through 49. These verses conclude Jesus' sermon in this chapter. It's a sermon that is also recorded, I believe, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, known there as the Sermon on the Mount. But both the sermon in Matthew and the sermon here in Luke begin with the Beatitudes and end with the illustration of the two builders. They have that similar beginning and ending structure. And so Jesus, in this sermon, is giving instructions to his disciples about how they are to live if they are to follow him. If they are truly his disciples, what should their lives be defined by? And he's talked to them already in this sermon that they're required to live in supernatural ways, to love their enemies, to reject the riches and acclaim of the world, and to endure ridicule and hatred from the enemies of Christ. And now, within the verses before us, Jesus brings the sermon to a close by highlighting two different kinds of people. 
He does this so that we can evaluate ourselves and see what camp we are in. So let's read this text, Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 49. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, are, uh, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So from this text this morning, I want to highlight for us two principles for discerning the true state of our hearts. Two principles for discerning the true state of our hearts and thus our eternal destiny. Where our hearts are at before Christ is important not only for our lives today, but also for where we will spend eternity. There's no greater issue that we could discern. So the first principle that our passage gives us uh, to discerning our true state of our hearts is, number one, our, our communication reveals our character. Our communication reveals our character. We see this in verses 43 through 45. And it's in this paragraph that he gives us the illustration of two trees, right? The good tree and the bad tree. And he states a simple truth that's easy to know that each tree is going to produce its own fruit based upon the true nature and character of that tree. If it's a bad tree, it produces bad fruit. If it's a good tree, it produces good fruit. And he draws that out with a couple statements in verse 44, right? He says, For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. You're not going to find a fruit on the wrong kind of bush or the wrong kind of tree. This is somewhat of a duh principle, right? That only apple trees are producing apples and only lemon trees are producing lemons. But it's that kind of simple principle that he lays the foundation for to help us to understand the deeper spiritual truth. And so Jesus makes his point clear in the first phrase of verse 44. Look at it, verse 44. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The fruit identifies what kind of tree it is. So, for example, let's say you uh, bought a house and there are several fruit trees in the backyard, but you're not sure what kind of trees they are. There's no fruit on them, and so you have to wait for the year to go on and for the cycle of the tree to go, and you have to wait for the, uh, the blossoms to come onto the tree, and then, and then you begin to see fruit forming, and you have to wait to see the fruit fully developed to know what kind of tree it is. I had the same experience recently when I borrowed some soil from Pastor Luke, who um, gave me some soil for my garden, and uh, a few weeks later there was some bunch of sprouts coming up out of it, and I was like, huh. I wonder what kind of sprouts these are. And uh, they kind of looked like cucumber plants. So I was like, all right, I'll kind of assume that they're cucumbers. And we go along and I start vining them up. And 
um, come to find out that they were cantaloupe, not cucumber. So you can't know what it is, the plant is, until you actually see the fruit, and then you truly know what that plant is. And so Jesus applies a simple principle in horticulture to people. He says there's two kinds of people. There's those who are good, and there's those who are evil. Those, both of these people produce different kinds of fruit. The good person, he says, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure produces evil. For, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so Jesus' point is this. Every person is like a tree, and every person is producing fruit. There's either good fruit or there's bad fruit. But notice, what is the determining factor between these two kinds of fruit? It has to do with something deep down inside. It has to do with the heart. It's the inner person that is determinative of outward behavior. And that's what Jesus summarizes right at the end of verse 45. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. He's saying that it's the fruit that the person puts out that shows in how they speak and how they communicate that identifies what's truly going on deep down in someone's heart and therefore where they truly stand. Jesus talks about what comes out of the mouth in a concrete way, but I believe it really can apply to any way that we communicate, any way that we live as we as we communicate to those around us and we speak and we live how do we live that and how, what do we communicate what do we put off that shows what's going on in our hearts jesus says that that we can't simply look to our fruit and think that it's 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 stapled there or it's actually true of what the root is And this principle that what comes out of our lives and out of our mouths indicates what's in our heart has profound implications for our lives that we cannot miss. This means that we can know the character of our hearts by looking at how we live. Now, these principles here can be used in helping other people in our lives, but I believe that Jesus' primary application in this text is for us to evaluate our own lives. And that's where we need to look to first. Think of the the verses just before this, right? The idea of the log, the plank that's in one eye and the speck in somebody else's. Jesus wants us to evaluate our own lives before we begin evaluating others, even though these principles are helpful in helping other people as well evaluate their lives. But we've got to look in our own lives. And that means that what we say, what we text, what we post online, The looks that we give other people reveal what is going on deep down inside us. Get this, you cannot dodge your fruit. You cannot dodge your fruit. You can walk up and you can paint that lemon a deep red and say it's an apple, but it's not true. The fruit cannot lie. They reveal our hearts. And yet it's common today for us to try to dodge this connection. right? We we hear things like, oh, I didn't mean that. Or, I didn't mean to say that. Or, or here's one, that was out of character for me. Jesus' words here make it clear that such excuses are inaccurate and untruthful. The fruit and the root are always connected. If we see the fruit, then it reveals something about the root. And so I believe Jesus taught this in order for each person 
that day, listening to his words, and everyone since who have read these words, including us today, to evaluate and to examine himself. That means he wants us to look to the fruit in our lives, to look at the decisions we make, the, the things that we say, the ways that we communicate, and to see truthfully and honestly, take stock and see what does that say about my heart? What does this fruit say about what's going on inside of me? Some of this communication, some of this what we speak might only be words that we speak in our own head that other people do not even hear, but we know that our heart is producing them. We've got to take stock and we've got to be honest about what our hearts are producing. And so inspecting our fruit will lead us in one of two ways. Either we'll identify that we have a good heart or an evil heart. Those are the two options that Jesus gives us. So we need to identify what does Jesus mean by a good heart and an evil heart? What is he talking about? Well, we know that the Bible is, is clear that each one is born into sin. That none of us come out of the womb as innocent or pure or righteous. Romans chapter 3 says no one is righteous. Genesis 6 describes that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. We have a propensity to evil since the fall. As uh, Brother uh, Bernie prayed, right, that we are, are, uh, we, don't, we are not sinners because we sin, but we uh, sin because we're sinners. It's our character, our nature that causes us to sin. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, our first parents, all of mankind has been doubting and disobeying God's word. We've been mired in sin and wickedness. We all fall short of the glory of God. We fail to live up to God's standard, and we naturally disobey God's commands. On their own, people in their own sin don't even care about God's commands, much less want to follow them. This is the nature of man. The default position of all humanity is that they are evil. This is the realistic but dark assessment that the Bible has of each one of our own hearts. We were not born into a righteous state. We are born with evil hearts. We all know that our children did not have to learn how to lie, to learn how to cheat, to learn how to steal. That all came quite naturally to them. It is training and teaching and learning uh, the right way that we have to push back against that evil that is natural within the human heart. So if, that's, if all humanity in one sense can naturally be found within this evil heart that he identifies, then who are the good hearts? Who are the good people that Jesus speaks of here? Who has this good treasure in their hearts? Well, I think if mankind naturally has evil hearts and sinful hearts, then the, the, the good people are those who have different kind of hearts, right? They've been changed. There's something that's different. In order to have anything good in them, they need to be made new. They need to be given something good from the outside because we don't produce good on our own. We don't have any goodness that we can attribute to ourselves and say, hey, look at this good that I have done. If there's any good in us, it's all because it's been given to us by God. And so the gospel promises that, that through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can have new hearts. That's one of the great promises of the gospel, is that we can be radically changed. Guilty sinners can be given a new heart with new desires. 
And this is what the Bible calls regeneration or the new birth or being born again. This idea of getting a new life, getting a new heart. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot be saved. One cannot be saved unless there is regeneration. Salvation does not happen unless a new heart is given to them. But when the Spirit makes someone new, He gives them a new heart and cleanses them. This was promised in the Old Testament through the New Covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then he says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The promise is that the spirit would come upon believers and that they would get a new heart that they would be cleansed, and that they would, have, they would have the Spirit of God. God promises through the gospel a change of heart. He promises the Spirit. And this came to the inauguration of the new covenant that came to the death of Jesus Christ. Through His atoning work, we are able to receive this cleansing. We are able to receive the Spirit. We are able to receive this new heart. Paul emphasized this newness in 2 Corinthians 5.17. No doubt a verse you've heard where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in, new, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is newness when we are in Christ. This is the doctrine of regeneration. And so coming back to Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Unless you've experienced the transformation of God, which results in you having a new heart, then you are only going to produce evil. The only way for you to produce good and to have good treasure within your heart is to be regenerated by God's grace. You see, the good person having the Holy Spirit will produce what kind of fruit? Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what will flower and fruit into a believer's life. The one who has been transformed, the one who has been changed, will manifest itself in these ways. Life will be different than it was before. Well, what would characterize an evil person? Well, Paul gave us, right along that list of the fruit of the Spirit, he talked about what the works of the flesh were so that we could also know what characterizes the flesh. He says there's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, even sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he says... I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, there's a stark contrast 
between those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and manifest the fruit of the Spirit in their life and those who live according to the flesh. Now, it's possible for those who live according to the flesh to try to put on a show. And that is what hypocrisy is. That's what the Bible calls out time and time again of trying to convince other people that you're actually good. And using Jesus' analogy here, that's like going to your tree and trying to staple on fake fruit. It's not the real deal. It's not actually identifying what the root is, what the tree is. And you're only fooling other people. You'll never fool God who truly knows who you are deep down in your heart. We need to take assessment this morning of our hearts because God already knows our hearts. And he's the one to whom we must give an account. He's the one to whom we will stand before as the judge. Now, is this saying that Christians always do the good and the right things, that their communication is always right and that they never do anything wrong? Absolutely not. The Bible is honest in that way too, that even though there is transformation, even though there is fruit of the Spirit, there is still a remaining sin principle that resides within man. That we have uh, remaining sin and corruption, a flesh that we still battle, that we still have to put to death in order to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. So this is not saying that the Christians or those who follow Jesus would, would act good all of the time and are just perfect. But the question is, what is the character of our lives? What characterizes us? When we, when we look across the span of, of days and years, what do we see? What comes to the surface? What is the fruit that is there? Are we seeing fruit that identifies the Spirit's work in us, the good things that He is transforming us in? Or if we look at the fruit in our lives and realize that time and again in, in all sorts of places that we're seeing bad fruit, that we're seeing sin characterize our lives. And so we need to ask ourselves the hard questions. Are we with Jesus and Therefore, producing this good fruit? Are we truly his disciples? If we're not producing good fruit, then the question remains whether we're truly converted. Have we actually received the Spirit? Have we truly believed in Christ? Have we truly experienced transformation? Friends, there's a world of difference between simply trying to be a good person and being transformed to be a good person by God. Transformation only happens by the action of God. If we try to be a good person in our own power, in our own strength, that's what's called moralism, in which we simply see good moral standards and we try to live up to those in our own strength, in our own, own power. That might work for a time. That might convince some people around us. In fact, it might convince people your entire life because you hide the true you from yourself and from others. But that is not true transformation. That is not true salvation. And when you stand before the Lord on that judgment day, the true character of your heart will be revealed. And there will be no dodging your fruit and no dodging the character of your tree, of your root in that day. And so we need to ask ourselves, inspect our fruit and say, 
what does my life and my speech reveal about my heart? For some of us, the communication of our lives, the natural outflow, what is flowing out of us, reveals that we don't know the Lord. And I plead with you that you would be honest with yourself and with the Lord today to make that admission, that you would stop hiding that truth. If you know deep down that you do not know Christ, that you need salvation, that you're living your life in your own strength, that you're trying to be a good person on your own. Admit that. Be honest about your fruit and honest about your tree. And it is through that admission, it is through that honest acknowledgement that you come to Jesus in repentance and faith and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. My heart is wicked. I know it. But you go to Jesus because only he can save you. You see, repentance and faith is, is acknowledging that you can't save yourself, that all of the goodness that you think you have, the nice person that you think you are, doesn't measure up in God's sight. That that righteousness, that goodness you think you have, is really as filthy rags as the scriptures say. Admit that. Confess that to the Lord. And only in that repentance and faith that you will find life. And you'll find transformation to live the life that God wants you to live. For, for those of us that are disciples of Christ, we examine our fruit and we see sin, do we not? We, sin areas, we see areas of disobedience. We see ways in which the flesh still shows itself. And we've got to be honest about that too. See it, confess it, repent, and turn away from it. We can't allow bad fruit to pop up here and there and ignore it because that will ultimately spread like gangrene into our lives and take over. We've got to be ruthless about killing our sin. It was the theologian John Owen who said, be killing sin or it, sin will be killing you. We cannot dodge our fruit. Friends, the, our words, our communication, our lives reveal our character. We can't blame our circumstances. Jesus says it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It's not because of the circumstances that our mouth speaks. It's not because of what other people are saying to you that your mouth speaks. It's not because of the hard things that you're in or what she did or what he said. Those don't explain why you say the things that you say. It's your heart that explains the things that you say. This truth pins us against the wall for every word that comes out of our mouth, every attitude that is upon our hearts. We cannot dodge our fruit, and it's only by being honest and realizing that it pin, where it pins us that we're able to find life and walk in repentance and change. So Jesus wants us to examine our communication and see what it reveals about our character. That's the first principle. The second principle this morning that Jesus gives us to reveal our hearts is, secondly, our actions reveal our allegiance. Our actions reveal our allegiance. Jesus closes out his sermon with this illustration of the two builders, but he begins that illustration by asking a penetrating question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and not do what I tell you. With one question, Jesus confronts each one of us. None of us get off the hook. Christ, in essence, is pointing at you this morning and saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, even if we have been walking in faithful obedience and we say, Lord, Lord, I've been living in faithful obedience to you. You are my, you're the one my heart loves and I want to follow you with my life. I fear you above all else. Even if that's the case, this question should give us pause. We should not gloss over what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here. You see, inherent in Jesus' words is a connection. A connection that we must see that, that between uh, uh, lordship and obedience. You can't call someone Lord and not obey them, not do what they say. Because you see, calling someone Lord, you see that they are an authority over you. And therefore, there is submission and obedience that's required. And so when we call Jesus Lord, it's not just a title that we throw around. It means that he is supreme and that his word sets the agenda for our lives and that we obey him no matter what he says. That is the character, the heart of a Christian that says, Jesus is my Lord, and therefore I follow him in whatever he says. And so Christ here is standing before a crowd of people from all over Israel, even some neighboring nations, as they listen to this sermon. And many of them are there just because they're curious. They want to hear what he has to say. They're fascinated by this new religious teacher who's, who's drawing crowds. And there's others that have maybe just come for this event, but many who have been following him for a while. Remember, previous to this, Jesus chose his 12 apostles. And out that, he chose his apostles out of a group of disciples who've been following Jesus for some time. So there's men and women that are there that are following him. They claim to be his disciples. But Jesus here calls them out. For many of them are following him and calling him Lord, but they are not walking in obedience. They, their lives do not show that they truly see Jesus as their Lord. Now, there are certainly disobedient Christians, those who truly know the Lord but are walking in disobedience in periods and times of disobedience. But one cannot call himself a Christian if the pattern of his life is disregard for the words of Christ. One cannot call himself a Christian or a follower of God if there is a life of disregard of the scriptures and obeying those scriptures. Unfortunately, there are many who sit in church week after week and they think that because they're around religious things, because they are hearing the word of God, because they are about church things, that they therefore are a disciple of Christ and a follower. And Jesus looks at them and says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It is, we hear the voice of Christ in the word of God. We hear him speaking loud and clear to us. Our instructions that we are to follow, that we are to obey today, are found in the word of God. He tells us to believe in him. He tells us to love one another. He tells us to flee from sexual immorality. He tells us to live pure and holy lives. We hear all sorts of commands from our Lord in his word. And so the requirement for disciples of Jesus is not just to hear the words audibly, but to put those words into practice. 
to obey. Now, there are some Bible teachers who say it is possible to be a Christian without obeying Jesus. They say one can believe in Jesus in their heart, but live like the world in their actions. But I have to say, friends, this is a distortion of what God's Word says. It's a distortion that unfortunately has caused millions to spend their lives affiliated with the church, thinking they are saved because they asked Jesus into their heart some time ago, but they are not truly saved because they have never bowed the knee to Christ and confessed Jesus as Lord and lived as if he was their Lord. These teachers say that someone can believe in Jesus at some point in their life and then live however they want with no consequence to their soul. They walk the aisle, and so therefore they're saved. They got their get-out-of-hell-free card, and so they just carry that around and live however they want. Friends, this teaching has filled the church across America and across the world with what they call carnal Christians. They contrast that with spiritual Christians. Those who are serious about your faith, you're spiritual Christians. And the people that just believe but don't do anything about it are called carnal Christians. And anytime you hear someone talking about carnal Christians, you need to ask some questions because it could mean that they're understanding this teaching. Those who teach this say that a simple belief is the only thing you need for salvation, but it's a belief that doesn't submit to Jesus as Lord. And Jesus makes clear in this text that that is not a saving faith. This is a, that's a quote-unquote faith. That's a belief that ends in destruction. If you don't obey Jesus, ruin is your future, he says. It's not biblical belief. If you believe in Jesus, you turn from sin. In fact, a, a key verse to refute this is in John 3.36 that says this. Whoever believes in the Son, belief, you see that belief, has eternal life. But look at the contrast. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, it's not just whoever doesn't believe that the wrath of God remains on him. It's those who do not obey. Therefore, obedience is attached to belief. It's one and the same. If you've been transformed, if you're submitting to Jesus and calling him Lord, your life will reflect that. So there's a connection between belief and obedience. They go together. Now, don't get me wrong. We are saved by grace alone. We're saved through faith, by grace, our works do not play into our salvation one bit. It's 100% God's effort and God's work. But when he saves, he transforms and, re and regenerates, as we already talked about this morning, and that transformation shows itself in a changed life. And so I have a couple equations here to help, you, help illustrate this truth, a simple math equation. The false gospel that we need to understand is that Faith plus works equals salvation. This is the false gospel that adds works to faith. It says you need to believe and do X, Y, and Z in order to achieve salvation. That's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. The true gospel is this. Faith then results in salvation plus works. Salvation plus works. Do you see it works? We're on the other side of the equal sign. When we believe, then we receive salvation and works accompany that transformation, accompany that salvation. A changed heart will result in changed fruit. 
as Jesus indicated earlier. And so there's no biblical warrant for thinking that belief in Jesus for salvation excludes the requirement of an obedient life. Jesus' words here put that to rest. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you think that you're a Christian if you do not do what I say? Well, Jesus shows the seriousness of this hypocrisy by an illustration of two builders in verses 47 and 49. The first group he describes... He says, verse 47, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Notice the three things that describe this group. He says, Everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and does them, I will show you what he is like. These people are serious about coming to Christ, about listening to him and putting his words into practice. There's movement towards him. There's attentiveness and there's obedience. And Jesus says those sorts of people are like, verse 48, he's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Jesus emphasizes this digging down deep. Matthew in his illustration of these builders talks about simply building on rock. Here Luke uh, records Jesus talking about the laying of the foundation, the digging down to get to bedrock, to get to rock, to provide a stable foundation. This building of this house, the digging down deep to get to rock is hard work. This no doubt took a lot of time, took a lot of effort. It was costly, but he believed it was worth it in order that his house would be secure. No doubt the day was bright and sunny. There was not a cloud in the sky. There was no thought that there would be any rain, that there would be any water that would threaten the building. And yet he knew the storms and rains would come. And so he did the hard work and laid the foundation. And it paid off. Because it says that when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. There's rainstorms that came into the area, created a stream of water that flowed out of the canyons and came and bashed against this house. But it was unmoved. It was not shaken. Why? Because it had been well built. It was built upon a strong and firm foundation. Jesus then talks about a second group. In contrast, verse 49 But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. This person takes the easy route, the shorter route, the less work route to simply build a house on the ground level, as Matthew says, on the sand. They they don't want to dig down to rock. They don't want to do the hard work. They simply build it right there on the surface. It looks the same from the outside as the other house, but it doesn't have the stability of the other house. And when does that reveal itself? It reveals itself in the storms. When the storm stream breaks against it, it says it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. The storms did come. Even though he may have been building this on a bright sunny day, the storms eventually came and it struck against the house and the ruin was great. Jesus ends his sermon, ends this account with really the sound of the collapse of this house lingering in the air. The ruin of that house was great. 
And we're supposed to hear that collapse, hear the crushing of wood and rock and recognize the destruction that's coming for one who did not build his house on a strong foundation. And Jesus uses this to illustrate two lives. Those who build upon Christ and those who do not. Those who build upon Christ and those who build upon anything else. Upon fame, upon riches, upon self-achievement, upon self-righteousness. Anything that rejects Jesus and seeks to build their life on something else will ultimately be destroyed in the end. Even though the day might be bright and sunny now. Even though there may seem to be no consequences to how you live your life according to your choices and your designs, Jesus is saying here there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day when the storm will come against your house. Now there are storms in this life. There are pains and sufferings that come that test and check the foundations of our lives. Many of you have experienced those storms of life, those great suffering that comes and slams against the wall of your house. And it's in that moment that, that you're tested to see if your foundation is truly upon Christ. And by God's grace, he's held you fast. And he's showed that, that your foundation truly is upon him. And others have experienced that suffering and that pain and it's revealed that they have no foundation. They are now floating off away from Christ. And that is just a foretelling of the future day of judgment. Everyone will be judged according to their deeds. The book of Revelation makes that abundantly clear. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, this is a judgment that is coming. It's real. It will be the ultimate storm, the ultimate rush of water against our houses of our lives to see whether we've built upon a true foundation. And so the question that each one of us needs to ask is what's the foundation that I've built my life upon? What am I trusting in? What am I depending upon? And as we said, you can't just say, oh, I trust in Jesus and then live however I want. Jesus doesn't give us that option. If you trust in Jesus, if you're a disciple of his, if you, if you call him Lord, then it must result in an obedient life. And so we must look at our actions Look at our lives. Are we living obedient lives? Are we living lives that seek to follow God's word? Are we conscientious about seeking to obey the scriptures in, in, in our family life? In, in the, behind closed doors when no one else is seen, are we seeking to follow Jesus because he is our Lord? In the workplace, are we seeking to follow Jesus 
and confess him as Lord and do live according to the word of God in those moments? Folks, every area of our lives, Jesus is Lord. He's not just Lord over like church and Bible reading. And then we go and live all these other areas of our lives how we want. He is total Lord, demanding total obedience. And the great thing is the Bible shows, as this, even this parable shows, that is where life and blessing is found, is when we submit to Jesus. The lie of our, the flesh tells us that if you live life for your own way, for what you want, you're going to find life and fulfillment. Jesus says, don't believe that lie. Do not believe the lie that you living your own way how you want is ultimately going to pay off. It's ultimately going to end in great ruin for your soul. As the song we sang earlier says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is shifting sand. We must depend wholly and completely upon Christ if we want security and stability, not only in this life to face the pains and suffering that we face here, but also to face the ultimate judgment one day. We must pay the price to build upon the foundation of Christ. And that's painful. To surrender to Jesus requires self-denial. J.C. Ryle, the theologian from the 1800s, gives us this salient reminder. He says, Such a man's religion may cost him much. Like the house built on a rock, it may entail him pains, labor, and self-denial. To lay aside pride and self-righteousness. To crucify the rebellious flesh. To put on the mind of Christ. To take up the cross daily. To count all things but loss for Christ's sake. All this may be hard work, but like the house built on the rock, such religion will stand. The streams of affliction may beat violently against it, and the floods of persecution dash fiercely against it, but it will not give way. The Christianity which combines good profession and good practice is a building that will not fail. Friends, May we be people and a community of people that build upon Christ as our only foundation, the only thing that stands, the only thing that gives us stability in this life. And so, Jesus' words here cause us to examine our own hearts. We must look to our communication and see what does that reveal about our hearts, our character of our hearts. We must look to our actions and see what does that reveal about our allegiance. Where do we truly stand? Who is our Lord? Whose voice are we listening to and that we're following? I pray that God would give each one of us discernment and have enable us to look at our own lives honestly and accurately under the scrutiny of God's word, that we would not be deceived into thinking that we have a good heart and thinking that we have stability when we are really have a house upon sand. May God give us grace to examine our hearts accurately. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word. It's a sober warning to be reminded that that we can be self-deceived. To be reminded that just by doing certain things doesn't guarantee our eternal position. 
Oh, Father, I pray that you would please take blinders off of our eyes. Do you enable us to see what is truly going on in our lives and in our our hearts? Father, I pray that for those who are here this morning who think that they are saved, who think that they have trusted in Christ, but their lives do not reflect it, oh God, may you place great conviction upon their hearts. And may you enable them to be uncomfortable. Father, lead them to the only place of refuge and salvation from your wrath, and that is in Christ. May you show them the path of repentance and faith. We thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us, that you delay your ultimate judgment so that others might know of your grace and might repent and turn to you. May we see your grace and see your love in the gospel and turn to you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, you are dismissed today. If you have any questions about anything I've said, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Feel free to come down, or if you're online, contact me, email or phone. May God give us grace to do what he says this week as we follow our Lord. You're dismissed.